I'm Elizabeth Hicks, a junior fellow at Massey College. You're listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast, where people and ideas intersect. In this episode, I speak with Wanja Gathu about her life and career as a journalist, educator, and advocate for human rights. Good morning. My full names are Elizabeth Wanja Gathu. Elizabeth is the name that my mother gave me on my baptism. But over the years, as I have grown older and gotten to know who I am and what I stand for, I have had a rethink about what my name is, what it means to me. And I think that um, our English names came about in Kenya because of our colonial history. Uh, where, where, and then uh, the, the crusaders who brought religion to us told us that our names, as African as they were, they were not godly. So you had to be this saint, the other saint, this English person, the other one. So as I grew old and I got to understand my history and the person that I am, I realized that I want to be known by the names by which I was born. That's why I call myself Wanja. Uh, Gadu is my father's name. Yeah. Well, thank you so much mm. for joining me for this conversation today. You're a human rights defender, strong advocate for social justice and peace building. Why did you decide that journalism was the avenue to pursue these goals? I I didn't choose journalism. I think that uh, the career chose me. I wanted to advocate for the rights of people to be treated fairly. I wanted to be able to, to, you know, to defend the rights of, of people from a very early age. If you know a little bit about Kenya, you will know that uh, from the period of 1978 to about uh, 2000, we were governed by the same leader. President Moy, he was uh, a dictator. When you disagreed with the policies that were operating at the time, the result would be that you'd be arrested, you'd be tortured, you'd be killed, you could be disappeared. There was danger everywhere. And so as a young journalist, full of ambition and dreams of changing my country, I went right in. So I witnessed uh, injustice again at a very high level, uh, face to face. I reported on these cases. I could uh, follow up on the torture of, of people like Kwegyo, uh, Wamwere, Raila Odinga, leaders of our democracy. We, I told these stories. And by so doing, I became a target without even knowing it. In the early 2000s, I went out to cover a story just as usual. Uh, my editor had assigned me that bit because he knew that I was driven to bring out conversations around uh, self-governance, about uh, social justice, about uh, leadership that is uh, owned by the people and for the people. But when I went out that, that day, I didn't come back home. I was arrested and I was detained in, uh, in a place quite far away from home. And I was held not being able to speak to anyone. Nobody knew where I was for about uh, uh, for two weeks. And how old were you at the time? I was 22. I was very, very young. You know, I, I was young, naive, but driven, uh-huh. and, and, but very courageous, because often uh, the stories that I would cover, a lot of people would shy away from. So I ended up uh, being detained 
and uh, beaten up. It was it was not a pleasant experience. I was beaten up. I was uh, stripped naked. I was locked up in a you know you know prison cell full of men. I think I was the only woman in that cell that had uh, held dozens of men. So uh, that experience again did not deter me from doing what what I, what I wanted to do, but it, it hadn't my resolve to want to tell stories and expose what was going wrong. So these are the, the conditions under which my journalism uh, began. So human rights journalism is not something that, I, again, I chose. It chose me. Because you're like, when you know what can go wrong when the rule of law does not apply, then you have a duty to make sure that you create the space for the voices of those that are dissenting to be heard. Because otherwise, we cannot have a democracy. Following my arrest, uh, speaking of which I should mention, that for fear of persecution that I did leave my country and go uh, live in the Southern African region and uh, work with media there as well, where I got an opportunity to work with uh, organizations like the Pan-African News Agency, Pana is uh, was 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 built along the lines of uh, development journalism, telling stories that would edify and promote African development policies that were working. So that was a time when I got to interact with the good of good governance principles. You know, not everything about Africa is is really bad. So I did tell stories that were really comforting, gratifying, promoting, um, you know, what, what is good about Africa. So this, this is a period in my career that I can say that I experienced growth, that I did work without feeling um, undermined or under duress. But uh, I returned home to Kenya uh, in uh, 2000, 2010, just after we had had uh, an election. And uh, I think maybe the timing was not right, but the calling was still with me. So I, I, I am like, a, I have started a career uh, being a very critical, wanting to change things. We get the change we need and there is a peace and calm for a time. And then come 2007, there is almost a civil war in my country. Again, the instincts in me that tell me I, I can't keep quiet when these things are going wrong, I pick up my children and I return home. Maybe the timing was not right, but I had to. <laughs> so, but, but when I got home, I realized that uh, this is not the country that I had hoped for. Even in the face of the progress that we had made, constitutional changes, changes to people's rights and uh, welfare, we had uh, uh, progressive, for example, plans for health care. We had a progressive um, constitution that said you could not, for example, be arrested and detained without trial. We had a constitution that said that everybody has every, a right to decent education, to food, to shelter. These things were not made available to the marginalized of us. And so there was discontent with people thinking that uh, power has remained with certain groups of people at the expense of others. So this is why this um, violence broke out. So 
I have returned home and I found this to be the situation. And immediately I start to do the work that I know how to do, to call out the government, to ask the term, to, to hold those people that are orchestrating this violence to account, to, add, to, to demand that uh, women and, and children be put into consideration when government decisions are made. So this time I am a mother and I have sons. And uh, the trajectory that my country was taking back then was putting young people in danger. I began to do uh, journalism that was bringing out uh, extrajudicial killings. We were talking about the uh, disappearance of young people. Now, move, back, move on 10 years later, as we speak now, we have um, a new government in place. And this government that we have in place is made up of a good number of people that were indicted for criminal activities back then. So you can see that the trajectory is, is, is such that we, we seem to be, we made progress, but now we are, we're coming back to where we started. The same injustices that we were speaking about then are now even more blazing, they are even more blatant. You see excessive abuse of power, you see a police state to some sort, where police are pitted against the people. You see a civil society that is uh, weak. So now the human rights defender or the journalist that is uh, conscious about social justice that I am, I have felt the need to, to do more. I want to help create a society that is just, just not just for my children, my, my two sons, but for every Kenyan. I want uh, a society, or I hope for a society where people can determine their destiny, you know, self-determination, because when you know where you want to go, you will ask the right questions. But um, a lot of the times, media fails to speak truth to power in the sense that uh, media is dependent on government support, mostly advertising. They depend on government to allow them to operate even. So you find that uh, sometimes they tend not to speak up. They tend not to criticize systems when they're doing things that are improper. So I feel that uh, I have a duty to keep telling these stories. I feel that I have a duty to um, point out that which is not obvious. And uh, yeah, because uh, it, is, it is the stories we tell that shape the reality for most of us. At this point in your career, so this past fall, 2022, mm -hmm. you came to Toronto, yes. to Massey College. Um, so you're here under the umbrella of the William Southam Journalism Fellowship. Yeah. And you're specifically the Gordon N. Fisher Journalists for Human Rights Fellow here at the college, and you're a resident here as well, yes, active member of the Massey community. Right. Uh, what has being here meant for your career? What What will you take away going forward? Well, uh, I would say, first of all, that uh, I feel very fortunate to be here because joining the fellowship came at a point in my career where I was feeling like... Uh, doing what I was doing was not giving me the results that I desired. I had begun to experiment with um, peace journalism back in the, around 2012, 2014, 
when I began to take another look at how we, we tell our stories, and I began to think that uh, journalists can make or break societies. Journalists can build or break peace. Journalists can, can, can help mitigate conflict. And I say this because post the 2007-2008 uh, violence in my own country, the media came under scrutiny. And the concerns were that uh, the media had played a role in funding the violence that took place in, in my country. And uh, how they did this was probably not consciously, but what they did was uh, tend to focus the news coverage on the violence that was going on. And then they tended to give narratives that would seem to indicate uh, that uh, one side is pitted against the other and the one side is the one doing things to the other party. So all these narratives tended to inflame um, ethnic divisions in, in, in my country. So um, the media was called to question. And uh, as part of the media uh, fraternity, everyone, I think, was challenged to begin to, to begin to think about what it is that we can do different. So this is how I came upon um, the concept of peace journalism, the kind of journalism that says, uh, whatever you do in your storytelling, the objective is do no more harm. If you are mindful about what you want to communicate, you can almost to a degree mitigate extremes of violence, extremes of uh, radicalization of any nature, extremes of narratives that cast certain groups of people in, in bad light at the expense of other people, you know. So, um, so now um, I realize that uh, as, a, as a journalist who is conscious about social justice, I cannot do my work without thinking about peace. Because peace and justice in my eyes, and I think a lot of people would agree, are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, you know? And, and for, to foster peace then, you must be very deliberate about how you tell stories. So the period before coming to Massey, I'm grappling with this, and I'm desperate for a break. So this fellowship came just at the point where I needed to take a break from everything and rethink the direction that my career was taking. So I came with a very clear mind that I would uh, take the time to distress, take courses in peace and justice, and uh, also participate in, in peace building activities while I was here. I joined the peace and justice uh, volunteer movement of the U of T, and I currently teach peace and justice conflict resolution uh, principles to young kids, kids in um, elementary school in, in Toronto. And I have found that to be the most exciting part of this because I realize also that uh, society is grappling with a lot of conflict. And But then uh, when you think about it clearly, you see this is a result of our upbringing. The leaders of today have grown up in a society that glorifies violence, a society that glorifies conflict, a society that doesn't create room for negotiation and discourse. So 
I have thought, and I agree with the thought that if you want to create justice societies, societies that justice, where justice and peace is a guiding principle, you have got to teach the children, teach them young. They learn by watching, they learn by listening, they learn by modeling. So if you're modeling to them violence, like you see a lot of that in uh, social media, you see that in the, in the cartoons they watch, you see that in the games they play, it's all about gunfire, it's about people killing one another, it's about people hunting one another. You, know, you desensitize them to violence. So uh, this program has been the highlight of my being at Massive. These kids have amazed me, they're nines and 10 year olds. You go, you go to class and you teach them this concept, uh, you, you, you'll be like, ask a simple question, like what would you do if your deskmate took something that belonged to you? And at the beginning, the kids would say, I'll take it back. I will go there and I will tell them of stuff like that. That's how they have conversations. Then this one kid came back from uh, home after an exercise. And, and he said, uh, you know, my brother has been troubling me. He takes things from me and he comes in my room when I don't want him to come into my room. And he bangs my door, things like that. So we asked him, how, how, did you how would you handle that differently? He said, I would talk to my brother. I can now tell him, I, you, you're doing this and I don't like it. And I don't like it. So how does the brother respond? Oh, he's no longer doing bad things to me. He understands that I don't like it. You know, simple testimonies like that have made me believe that, yes, I have, um, making a, I'm making a contribution to things that really matter. I'd love to hear about what you're doing next. I know you're writing a memoir. Oh. Or if there's anything else, you know, on the horizon that that I am doing. Okay, yes. Um, so for me, while I've been here, I uh, my grandmother is my role model. She has always been. She passed on in um, two thousand, not twenty eighteen. And um, over the years, I have always wanted to tell her story because she was born at a time, she was born in the 1920s, and she was uh, newly married. She found herself right in the middle of the British uh, colonial aggression because she came from uh, central Kenya and uh, lived in the areas that the white people, the settlers, targeted. They wanted to take control of the of what you call the White Highlands, now the Rift Valley, and uh, part of central Kenya because it was fertile, it had uh, good climate, it had um, forest and the rivers and the waters. Kenya is a beautiful country, so I think they saw that and they wanted to take hold of that part. But to do that, they, they had to drive people who were indigenously owners of this land, who occupied this land, they had to drive them away. They used things that you'd call the scorched earth policy. So they took hold of our men, they arrested them, they took hold of our women, put them in, in, in detention, they took hold of our children and they, they killed a lot of us. They, they were, my grandmother told me there used, used to be public hangings to, 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 to dissuade people from resisting the British. So my grandmother ended up being uh, one of the uh, freedom fighters who went to the forest to fight for the liberation of my country. And uh, she had no choice. Because when, when you have been uh, driven to the point of, of, of desperation, she had young children at the time, and uh, 
her husband had been arrested and detained long before she was. So she was desperate. She was in dire need of help. But, uh, well, she joined the Mau Mau Liberation Movement and uh, did, did a lot of... Um, work with the liberators of the country. So when the men were in the forest uh, fighting with the British, the women at home were organizing how they would get fed. They organized how these men would get clothes, how these men would get uh, what they needed to, to stay alive in the forest so that they would fight. So she was one of those people. So when she told me her story, I began to think, wow, she is a true hero because she did all this as a young mother and then even when she ended up in detention and lost uh, three of her children during that time, she didn't give up. She kept going. She, she kept fighting. She kept uh, making sure that those of, the, those of her children that survived, which is my mother and uh, her brother, came out of that situation alive. So that is a story that inspired me to want to write uh, the book. The book that I am writing to want to to show that um, women like my grandmother can overcome extreme challenges. You know, one time when she told me about uh, the mass hangings that happened in her village, I was I was blown away. I cried a lot that time and. I, I asked her, how is it that you, 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 you still would wake up every morning and, and go get, your, get on with your life? How, how did you do it? And she told me, I believed that this land was ours. And I could not rest until we got our land back. This land, we got it back with, with blood, sweat, and tears. I was committed to the cause. And it didn't, it didn't matter what happened we had to get our land back. She said, I didn't, I didn't care if I died. It takes tremendous courage and strength to stand up to such things and still wake up in the morning and say, this has happened, but it's not going to be the end of me. I will do better. I will fight. This is the reason why I'm here, because my mother survived. My mother is her first daughter survived. And I survived because they did. So that's a story I want to tell in, in, in that memoir. And I want to tell it not, not as, a, as a story of um, victimhood. No, I want to tell it as a story of triumph. I want to tell it as a story of, of struggle that you go into a, into a situation that is so dire with nothing and come out stronger. Because now when, when uh, our country got its independence, uh, my grandmother told me, that on that day, it is the best gift she could ever have hoped for. She felt uh, that what they fought for was not in vain. So I'm encouraged by that. So I tell that story, my story, my grandmother's story, my mother's and my own, as women who have been impacted by that colonial legacy, but women who, in spite of all that, have come up, come out stronger. I see that strength and resilience in everything you do, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you yeah. for this conversation, Wanja. I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. You've been listening to The JCR, a Massey podcast. 
I'm Elizabeth Hicks, and this has been a conversation with journalist Wanja Gathu. The JCR is a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining the discussion.